several selections from the Gospel of Mark. You can follow along on the screen as I read the multiple passages aloud for us. Um, Mark 1, 1 to 3. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Um, Mark 1, 14, 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Um, Mark 8, 27 to 31. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 10, 42 to 45. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 16, 6 to 8. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. Good morning. My hope in having us read all of those scripture passages was that we would get a, um, a snapshot, even just if you had a physical Bible flipping through all those pages, about what are the like, main beats of this, this gospel account, the life of Jesus. As you read the story that, that Mark gives you, you sort of see that it's not just about the a biography of this Jesus, that there's a, a real structure to it, there's an intentionality behind what you're supposed to experience as you just read through every beat of that story. We saw the, the pronouncement of who Jesus is. Mark only gives his opinion about Jesus uh, directly in one sentence, the very first part of Mark. And then we see Jesus' very first words recorded in human history. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom has come near. And then we see like this pivotal moment in chapter 8 where um, somebody finally says out loud what we're starting to gather as we read the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Greek word. The Hebrew word would be Messiah. And then immediately the tone of the book shifts, and Jesus enters into this different kind of teaching, instructing his disciples. And then we start to see in the chapters after that what it looks like to follow this Christ. And then we see the last passage of, our, um, of, of the Gospel of Mark, where people are confused, bewildered, and they're not sure what to do next with this risen Savior. Uh, Mark is a, a special book in the canon of scripture in the chorus that is the biblical testimony of who God is and how he's interacted with human history because it's the first gospel that's been written and it's the most direct gospel it's the most simple gospel in comparison to the other gospels Matthew Luke and John there's there's less teaching 
There's more action. The word in, in Mark, the word immediately pops up all over the place because Jesus is doing this and then immediately he does this. And Mark is just giving you like the straight, pulpy, direct, real Jesus as best as he can construct it from the eyewitness accounts. It's also important because if you look at all of scripture as one big story about God, it's like this bright, shiny, monumental breakthrough into like the third act of human history. It's also important to me because I have been on one of those Bible reading plans. Have you ever done the Bible reading plan and then flaked on the Bible reading plan? Okay, I'm, well, I'm great at that. I'm great at starting a Bible reading plan in a year, in two years, in six months, and then, you know, you like lose the habit and then you lose it. How many people are like great at the Bible reading plan? Nobody has their hands up. Okay, so um, it's just hard. It's hard. You're like, I'm going to do it this year and then you don't. Okay, so I've been on a two-year Bible reading plan for three and a half years and then... <laughs> But the, the Bible reading plan I picked on this app was um, from the Bible Project where they give you like those summary videos where you can watch them and like sum up the whole video and then enter in to read it. But it's chronological. And so like right now, I'm just getting into the New Testament on my Bible reading plan after legit a long time of reading chronologically through the whole Bible. And my, my typical Bible reading plan is like wake up with my son. If he's being good, then I'll like put a headphone in, this is a great parenting technique, put a headphone in, listen to my Bible while I'm like making coffee and making sure that my son stays alive because he's like the early riser in our family. And we're, you, you, you read through, if you have all the connections, all of like the steeped in the history of the hopes of these people, of the subjugated people, the people of Israel, in comparison to them being invaded and, invaded and then exiled into other countries, all of this like long story that now in this moment Mark is saying, all the focal point, all the hopes, all the history is pointing to this one person, and that's what makes Mark very special. We started a series in the Gospel of Mark two years ago, almost to the day. And uh, in starting the series, we were, you know, the world was different two years ago, it, uh, at least with our church life, right? We were in a brand new building, and it seemed like it was in a new building, in a new neighborhood, time to like re-engage with the founding source material of the Christian life with who God's going to make us as a congregation, how he's going to shape us in this place. And the, the vision of reality from its beginning is rooted in Colossians 2.17 that says, these are a shadow of the things to come. Think of all the things that have been a part of Israel's past that culminate in Jesus. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus. Jesus is living reality right now. Life in Jesus involves your true humanity right now. That's part of the vision of our church and what God sort of did at the founding of Reality SF and then in us having a new building and re-engaging with, like I said, this like source material and vision of, of who we are as a church. My hope in us sort of recapping Mark today and reading through the, the whole book basically, um, you know, in different sections, is that this would also bridge a gap between where we're headed as a church. Starting next week, we're, we're doing a, a new series called The Unseen Realm, where the sermon series and discussions and even the prayer practices through community groups will engage with like the non, in a materialistic culture, the non-material things that the Bible gives us about life. That there is an unseen realm that we often overlook even as Christians. And then even in September, we have a conference, a weekend conference, that we're calling the Encountering God Conference. And my hope that is that today would just be like a snippet, just a short 
bridge between two years of Mark and then us asking, like, okay, God, what now? Like, what's next? How do we encounter you and know you? And if you don't have the, the answer to that rooted in what Jesus has done and what God has done in sending his son, then we won't really be able to uh, really know exactly the foundations of our faith to encounter God and practice the way of Jesus together. So as I said, Mark, the first written account of the life of Jesus, and you have to ask the question, if you're doing an overview of Mark, like why was this written down in the first place? And it's kind of a spectacular account of human activity because whatever you believe about Jesus, the fact of history is that from this sort of obscure part of the world, unless you are rooted in a Judeo-Christian ethic, this obscure part of the world erupted all sorts of different people from all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people empowered from all different classes in society, which was not normal for the time, male, female, um, all across the, the, the sphere of uh, different vocations, people erupted from this place with this message on their lips, the Evangelion, the gospel about Jesus. And for about 30 years, that good news erupted from this place where people said that Jesus, the, the Savior, the Messiah, resurrected. He died on the cross, resurrected from the dead. You can have salvation and life in him. He's going to transform us. He's transforming the world. His kingdom is breaking in. That, that gospel was transmitted through all different people in different places for about 30 years, partially because the eyewitnesses to the resurrection and to the life of Jesus were all present, and then they were alive, and it was difficult to distort the message of the gospel because there were so many eyewitnesses in every sort of different town. And then after about 30 years, the disciples started to die off, some of those eyewitnesses started to die off, and then it became relevant to make an account of what happened with Jesus. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to the church that the resurrection happens and what it means, and then he lists the people who saw the risen Christ. He even goes on to say that 500 people saw him at one time, and you can go talk to them. And so Paul is living out this experience of being an early Christian. 1 Corinthians 15 is written way before the Gospel of Mark even written. And some of Paul's writings even written eight years after the ascension of Jesus. So Paul's saying, go talk to the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And it was important, because those people were dying off, to write down an orderly account. And so all these different people, like different groups of Christians, sought out to draw orderly accounts and write them down and record them for posterity so that the gospel can keep going out to different people. Look in um, Luke 1. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen for us. This is the beginning of Luke's gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decide to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. Here's what's important for today. I think there was a time where Jesus talk was so old, and it was old hat, it was sort of um, not relevant for, to, for today, and, and there was a time where that was the case. And then maybe that's like the early aughts, 90s, 80s, like in American culture more broadly, conversations about Jesus were sort of just dated. And then since the year 2000, there's sort of been a resurgence amongst all sorts of different people who live mostly in urban centers in America 
of spiritual exploring and spiritual seeking. But one of the main challenges to people who seek God in a place like San Francisco is that we have a strong pull and a strong tendency to make Jesus in our own image. That there's something about the culture we live in, something about the individuality that we live in, something about just the hyper-connected world where there's so many opinions coming at us at once, that the one thing we sort of all default on is just our take on a particular issue. Maybe that's part of why the world's so divided even. So we find ourselves in a unique challenge that Mark is an answer to, which is to say, if all you do is talk about Jesus and then we interpret it through our sort of late modern San Francisco lens and we say, I'd like to, I like this about Jesus, but I don't like this about Jesus, and therefore Jesus to me is, is, is like this, that we fall into the temptation of just having Jesus be us. Like having our conception of Jesus just be a reflection of the way we want him to be. And the problem with that is that that kind of God can't transform you. Like that God can't be greater than you because that God is you. And if, so if you're the filter, or if just your default cultural assumptions are the filter, then you'll, you'll never really have the power for change. And so Mark is like a great resource for anyone seeking God or anyone trying to live out as a Christian in San Francisco today with all different plurality and different ideas because Mark's trying to give you like the most direct, real Jesus that he can give you. Other Gospels have the lens of writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew, for instance, starts his gospel with a long genealogy. And John starts his gospel with, like, the creation of the world. John's, like, one of those big-picture thinkers that you have to make him get to a point. You know, he's like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Logos, and all this stuff. Like, Mark's to the point. Mark is saying, Jesus went here, he went here. Look at the people who interacted with him. Look at what he said. It was not, not full of teaching. It's like the actions of Jesus, the, the bare information. It's the shortest gospel. It's the information you need so that you can know the real Jesus and not fall into the temptation to just know a Jesus that is you worshiping in a mirror. So quickly, we'll run through a few beats through this whole book of the Bible in, um, I have 22 minutes left. Okay, so three points. <laughs> it's a long intro. Okay. I want you to, just my pastoral hope, I want you to encounter the real Jesus. I want you to have a real encounter, a missionary encounter, which is to say that we take up the thing that God called his disciples to do, and to have a progressive encounter, at which point everyone in San Francisco was like, did you say progressive? Now you're speaking my language. <laughs> no, I mean, in the most literal sense, whatever your beliefs about things are, like a progressive, like an ongoing encounter, because we have to ask the question, like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus after the resurrection? A real encounter. Look at Mark 1.1. Mark gives you his read on who this person is in human history, that this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah means anointed one. The Greek word for it is Christ. Really, it means king. And we see his kingship breaking in because the king broke in. And by Son of God, we see that Mark is quoting Isaiah to illustrate for us Exactly what Son of God means. It says in verse 2 and 3 that it's written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare a way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. Mark is citing Isaiah as one of these sort of historic hopes of the nation of Israel. And a, a prophecy that this city, Jerusalem, in the ancient Near East would be a place where God himself shows up. That's the prophecy in Isaiah 40. And that there would be another person to prepare a way for that Messiah and that anointed one. 
And Mark shows that that is John the Baptist. Isaiah 40 references the covenant name that the Jews won't write down or say, like the holy name, Yahweh, the, the covenant God of Moses, and a, a God so powerful that, that um, God doesn't have to, like, if you read other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, God has to slice other, their gods fight over each other over a watery abyss to become the victorious God and therefore create the earth. And Marduk becomes the winner over Tiamat by slicing her in half and separating the waters above and the waters below. You can study ancient Near Eastern creation myths. And God, see what commentary that is about God's character, that instead of there being a battle of a bunch of different gods over a watery abyss, that the Genesis 1 is a commentary on God's true theological nature, his sovereignty that says God creates with a word. That he's like the only God. And, and by his will, it, it becomes true. And that it's beautiful because it's a reflection of his very nature because he's a creative God. And it's that Yahweh creator God, sovereign over all things, that Isaiah 40 said, if you put it in the form of a question, what if God showed up here to our subjugated group, to our minority group, to this little town that's been invaded a couple different times in history but has a relationship with God that's a covenant that keeps reiterating the promise of God's salvation? What if God came? And Mark is saying that happened at the advent of Christ. Uh, It also means that the debating ideologies of the day are sort of, they find resolution as well. Like for centuries and centuries, philosophers have been talking about the spectrums of belief and where one should be. And in San Francisco, it's like a constant battle of ideologies around like the ideal and the real. You know, you sort of have the idealists that say, here's what our city should be like, and then you have the realists that sort of say, you can't always just hope, you can't just expect utopia to to exist. The ideal and the real, you've you've got um, rationalists and empiricists, people, you've got the individualists and the collectivists, you've got all sorts of different people always debating about what's the best ideology that will make human flourishing in our city. It's like a constant battle, especially in a a powerful city, like a city of of great influence and wealth. And every city, every culture has had these different debates. And one thing that Mark is presenting to us is that when, when Jesus showed up, it sort of puts to rest a lot of those different discussions because it, it becomes a focal point right on Jesus. Tim Keller in his book King's Cross says this, In Jesus Christ, the ideal has become real. The metaphysical has become physical. The immortal has become mortal. The unapproachable has become approachable. The, inevit- the invulnerable has become vulnerable, and the impossible has become possible. Mark is trying, as best language can communicate, to, to tell you that all of the longings of human history have their hopes in this person, that God is showing up, God incarnate in Jesus, a universe-altering event. And of course, when you talk about like the monumental message of the gospel of Jesus, I think anyone has to ask the question, um, why does it seem that so many of us live our lives as though it's not great news? And why is it so hard, seemingly, in a place like San Francisco to even break the barrier of interest with, with maybe the dominant cultural trends of our city? It's like if you've ever walked in on a movie and you didn't watch the first part of the movie and then you watch the big reveal, like the big moment, the climax of the movie, but you didn't watch the first part, it almost kind of makes the movie seem stupid. Have you ever had that experience at all? 
I do this with my wife all the time because my wife will say, do you want to watch a movie? I'll say, no. And I'll go do something else and I'll come in. And then about 30 or 40 minutes, I'm just laughing at like, why, why, why can that guy fly? You know, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, I was trying to think of what's the most ridiculous sounding big reveal of a plot that has been cool to me. And I was thinking of a book that I read. It was like a fantasy novel that I, I didn't read it. I listened to it on Audible. Um, and it, uh, it was called the Mistborn Trilogy. And it was like this fantasy novel. It got popular a few years ago. And the big reveal of this fantasy novel is that the Lord Ruler, the Silver of Infinity and the Father, has access to a full range of abilities. He's a ferrochemist and an allomancer and has hermological spikes in his body. And that was the big reveal of the plot, okay? Like, does that sound ridiculous to you? Yes, of course it sounds ridiculous. You have no connection with what those words mean. You're thinking, like, that makes me want to read that book less because of what you've described. Oh, the Lord Ruler has hermological spikes. But if you read the book, if you got connected to the plot up to that point, you would say, oh, no, that is meaningful. Like, that does bring together all of what you were wondering. How is the good guy going to win? How is the bad guy going to lose? And, and then it, that was the big reveal of that particular story. And I think there is, like, some weird exposure to a part of Christianity with a lot of people in San Francisco such that you, people might hear, like, um, Jesus died for your sins, and he uh, rose from the grave to give us victory, he will return in power to make all things right, wipe every tear away from your eye. There might be some connections there that is, matters to you. But for the vast majority of people, they sort of hear things about Jesus, and it's just like walking halfway into a plot and going, yeah, it just doesn't like, land with me. I don't understand why. The other part is Mark directly addresses, which is a number of people that as a pastor I end up speaking with frequently, that sort of say, okay, I am connected to the story of God. I have investigated enough stuff I want to be a Christian, but I just can't believe. Um, it's like f very frequent that people will say, I wish that I could jump over that step. Like, I know I need a few things from God. I know that there are parts of this story that I kind of seem like if I believe them, my life would be changed. But I just can't do it. And Mark is written for you. Think of Mark 1.14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of, of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. All of the things that you need, if you're that kind of person saying, I'm not sure where I stand with God, but I kind of want to be able to take a step in. But I have too many cultural barriers, too many logical barriers. Uh, can I just put like a sermon inside of a sermon? I just want to preach one sermon to you. I'll take one minute to do it. It's like Inception. You know, it's like a dream in a dream. There's a sermon in a sermon. For you, if you're saying like, I'm, I kind of want to take that step, but I'm not sure what to do. One, it says repent and believe the good news. It's not just about ascension. There is a repentance to that. And I think any of us who think that we're neutral with Jesus, are, we're deluded. Like the stakes are way too high. For us to say, I like Jesus, I wonder if, I could, if something could push me over, uh, over to, to do it. I, I would like to be a Christian. I'd like to think of myself as that. I'm just too, I'm just too darn smart. You know, I'm just too darn uh, insightful. I'm just so open-minded that I, I don't know if I could submit my life to Jesus. Like, there is a repentance that everyone, because some of you have had that, and then you became a Christian. And you know that it was pride, or that it was fear, because you were like, I, I didn't trust him. And I was afraid that I would have to give up X, Y, or Z, which were my functional saviors, to adopt Jesus as Savior. And we all have that, that barrier, but some of us in our pride just go, you know, I just, I just can't do it, but I like Jesus. No one likes Jesus. 
Like you're not engaging with who he said he is if it's neutral. So Mark is saying there has to be a repentance part of it. You can't get into believing the good news unless you're going like, okay, Jesus, let me pray an honest prayer. I don't really want all of you. I have a strong tendency to put you in my own image. Will you show me something about you that is such good news that it will overcome my current saviors and my current lords? And that's what Mark's trying to show you. Like there is a good news message that if you take it into yourself, will change you. Okay, this is more than a minute of my sermon in a sermon. But I want to tell you that when Mark says the kingdom has come near, that he's saying that reality has been torn open and that God is invading the reality of a broken world with his goodness and his kingdom and his light and his love. And so for, for people who are lonely, who are wondering how the world will be made right, who feel a constant sense of cynicism and discouragement, at least see that Mark is giving you a good news about Jesus that could change that. If you take this into yourself, it could change you. For those who need a God to be near, who need a God to be active in a broken world, who need a, a God that in the face of real repentance will accept me fully, which is exactly what we have in the gospel. And we have to have a missionary encounter. I... Um, I think if we're going to be like the disciples, Jesus' disciples, and we want to really get in the skin of those characters and be like, like experience what they experience, I think we have to think of like the closest analogy for most of us to being like the disciples is like being a foreign missionary. Um, a foreign missionary doesn't expect to be in a culture that knows much about Christianity, you know? Uh, a foreign missionary has to go in with humility and really like, the gospel has to be so a part of their heart that if they're going to go to some tribe that has never heard about Jesus and doesn't have the Bible translated like in their language, they know they have to have such a, a connection with God and a connection with other Christians all over the place to keep themselves encouraged in their faith. Uh, a missionary that goes overseas um, has to act with humility to gain trust and to really care for the people and not disdain them and only love them if they become the right kinds of people. Anyone wants to be a Christian in San Francisco has to radically trust in Jesus. And here's my point. We have to evaluate how much the way of Jesus is a counterformation to our default mode within our culture, the way that we're raised. You have to take very seriously the fact that there are things that need to be taken out of your life. Like you have to realize the things that are in your heart that are not prone to believing in Jesus and then like excise them from your life as equally as you need to take on the way of Jesus and do things differently by practicing the way of Jesus, by being in community with other people who believe in Jesus and repenting and believing the gospel. I think a lot of us think that Christian life, the Christian growth is mostly just taking on new habits, but it's a, it's a counterformation to the, all the intersections of identity that you have. And there are beliefs that we hold that might be from your family of origin, might be from the, your socioeconomic background, your cultural background, your particular idea of what a good adult should be like and the default assumptions about your adult life. And both sides of the Christian growth coin are taking on the way of Jesus and realizing that it is a counterformation to your default mode. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to, as soon as he hears from Peter 
that they believe he's the Messiah, he directly goes into the second half of the Gospel of Mark and says, now you need to understand your idea of suffering and your idea of power and status are way off. And until you realize that you have been formed into a particular way of thinking about power and a particular way of thinking about suffering, you will never follow me. And so that's the counterformation. If you look in, in Mark 8, 27, Jesus and his disciples went on the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell, him, not to tell anyone about him, which is part of this like secret motif throughout Mark, um, where Jesus is waiting for his time to go public. But look in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by all the people that the disciples cared about, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that Jesus must be killed and after three days rise again. Like as soon as they say, we see who you are and we want to live life with you under your reign, we're on, we're here for it. Then Jesus starts getting into the bad news. He says, your view of power, your view of suffering, you just don't, until you change those things, until you let me remove those things from your life, you won't be able to fully grasp the good news of the gospel. Um, my, my wife is a missionary kid. She grew up in the Congo, and her parents are the, like, uh, the typical, I don't know, it's typical they're probably going to watch this and be upset that I said the typical missionary. But, like, they got saved from the Jesus movement. They radically took on, like, their new life in Jesus. And they, I think, on some level were like, what's the craziest Christian thing we can do? And they love travel and they love multicultural experiences. And so God sort of answered their prayers. And they went to the Congo, like the heart of darkness. They, my wife grew up in a village with no running water. And uh, my wife tries really hard not to one-up anyone's stories because she always has a crazier story than you have. You know, you go like, oh, a snake bit me. She'll be in the back like, oh, that happens, you know, because she, she's been, she's got snakes everywhere. It's Africa. And uh, a, a while back, I was talking about how much I hate ants, and then her family all looked at each other like, oh, yeah, we know ants. And what happens is in, in, in the little village they lived in, missionary outpost village, where they would go out and share the gospel and train pastors and bring aid, um, the whatever like five foot tall African killer ant was around in their village would invade their house and you'd be up in the middle of the night covered in crazy ants, right? And I know. So, and then they would all wake up and it was sort of like sound the alarm, who's got ants on them? And then as the lights would turn on, you'd realize that like the whole house is just covered in ants and not just ants, but like streams of ants that are just making their way into the home. And you'll see that some, the ants found something in some corner of the house and then so just a millions of ants would find their way into there. And then after a few minutes, you don't want to disturb the ants because when you make them upset, like you're screwed, okay? So everyone sort of goes, okay, get the ants off of you. And then they would go back to sleep just on like the dinner table with like a bowl of water on each leg of the dinner table. And then all you have is the ants falling on you from the ceiling, which is like manageable, I guess. So here's the crazy part. The ants would go into the house. You don't disturb them because you just let them do their thing. They come in. You, they eat everything that they want rapidly. But they don't eat it right there. Of course, they take it back to their home. And so if you stand by the front door of the house, you just basically see a stream of ants carrying every little bug, every little skin cell, every little crumb 
that they found, and they're all just carrying like a huge bug bigger than themselves away to their home, and then all of a sudden, your house is spick and span because the ants came in and they just took everything possible off of every surface. And of course, the analogy here is like, that's exactly the work that Jesus does. Like there's a, um, <laughs> okay. Let me make my point. Let me make my point. Yeah. All right, I'll take an applause break. All right. So, like, it's, it's scary at first. It's uncomfortable at first. And you, you find yourself rid of all those little things that are hidden in every little corner of your life. And that Jesus does that work in your heart. He's saying, You're, you got into a lot of different things because status is important to you. You got into some of this relationship with Jesus because you thought that as long as I perform rightly, I'll be able to say I'm the right kind of person and my self-worth will take a, a bump. Which, of course, is the greatest so- source of self-righteousness because you're constantly busying yourself by being good and then looking at other people and saying, you should perform as good as me. It's like, what's wrong with the world is that kind of self-righteousness. And, uh, and the disciples, they didn't know how to suffer. Like, on some level, they got with Jesus because they thought, um, if I'm with him, I'll never have to be in pain. And the world's a tough place, and I want to be as safe as possible. And what happens to the faith of, of you, me, when we find out that under some corner was that hidden belief that we never said out loud, but then when you start facing trials and God doesn't answer your prayers the way that you want, that it comes up and you kind of go, you know what, I'm not sure if I'm down for this Jesus thing anymore. And it's not because you entirely believed a, bi- a biblical thing too much. Is that tucked away was this very unbiblical belief that Jesus never promised you that said, that, uh, if I believe in Jesus, I'll never feel cognitive dissonance. I'll never be confused about my faith or I'll never feel like I that, that, or doubt anything. And so you had it tucked away. Jesus brings out all these different things. And that's what it means to have like a, a missionary encounter with Jesus. That, that you encounter San Francisco like a missionary. That you let God do all that kind of reforming work. It makes you a purified kind of Christian. And now you're not showing up to your workplace in San Francisco. You're not showing up to your neighborhood and thinking, uh, assuming a certain kind of Christianized society where everyone agrees with, agrees with your presuppositions. If you, you know, some people live in San Francisco, but their heart belongs in Idaho. You know what I mean? And like they come here and they're going like, I want a certain type of Christianized American experience. And if that is your heart, then you do sort of start to hate San Francisco. And you start to hate a lot of different types of people in San Francisco. And there is something beautiful to us showing up and just thinking of ourselves as foreign missionaries instead of, I belong here. I wish all of you would just shape up and be a little bit more like me. So we have to have a missionary encounter. Tim Keller, um, Tim Keller, before he passed away, wrote a book called How to Reach the West Again. And I'd like to read you a quote. He says, Using the early church as our guide, churches and individual Christians must examine ourselves, our culture, and scripture to work toward a new missionary encounter with Western culture that will, be made, that will make the gospel both attractive and credible to a new generation. I think that's the hope of anyone who's a, who's a part of our church and lives in SF. The details of sort of like how Tim Keller, who was sort of a, a cultural trendsetter, a uh, person who I started sort of listening to on like an actual CD in the early 2000s. I, I was into the band before it was cool, I feel like, uh, in terms of Tim Keller, who, who became, like before he passed away recently, one of the most influential Christians um, alive. And he wrote this book, but the, the details of sort of each prescription that he wrote essentially just before 
before he left to pass on to people who enjoyed his writings and his thinking and philosophy, he said that we have to teach a counter-catechesis in a digital age. A counter-catechesis, he's Presbyterian, so he uses those kinds of words, but like the, um, a counter-formation. Like your formation of Jesus has to be a counter-formation from the way all of us are being discipled by the culture we live in. The, the second prescription is that we embody faithful presence in the public square, that we live out our faith and God's heart for justice and God's heart for different kinds of people, drawing them to himself in every public place that we go, and that we implement a category-defining social agenda. Like if we know by polls that the reason people are leaving church these days is that it, um, it, it's getting partisan, uh, that church for a lot of people was partisan, that it was misogynistic in tone, and three or four other main reasons, um, some of them having to do with like corrupt church leaders and, and power dynamics and that sort of thing. If we know why people tend to be leaving church, uh, in terms of like the stuff that is unbiblical, that churches are guilty of, then we need to let Jesus like take all the stuff out and let us be a new kind of Christian for, um, for the age that God has given us to, to serve. And let me close with this. We need to have a progressive encounter. If you look in Mark 16, Mark 16, 6, the eyewitnesses to the resurrection or to the empty tomb, it says, don't be alarmed. They see an angelic figure. Don't be alarmed, the angelic figure says. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's just the end of Mark. There is a, an additional sort of tag that is written in later manuscripts to the end of Mark. If, if you remember sort of the beginning of this sermon that we, we said that the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus went out verbally. Then they were written down and then they were copied um, like in mass with great accuracy. And we know that, um, that because of the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses, that the message of Jesus couldn't change because of the density of the people. This is the thesis of Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It was kind of a landmark scholarly work that um, in the last 50 years has meant that the dominant scholarship around the trustworthiness of the gospel accounts has moved the dating earlier and earlier to the time of Jesus. There was a time if we were in church in the early 1900s that we would all be plagued with this like dominant scholarly opinion that the, because you can't believe the gospel accounts because they were written so late, but we have more and more archeological evidence, more and more textual evidence. And as I said, more and more evidence that like it works that the timing is in the times of the eyewitnesses for the gospel to go out. And then once it was written down, we know it hasn't changed because once we have manuscript evidence, it goes all the way out into all these different places. And so if you wanted to, if you made a mistake in copying the gospel account, we know it because we can go 99%, 99.9% of the gospel accounts that we've dug up are here. Most of the, most of the um, inaccuracies in copying the manuscript evidence, by the way, are misspellings because it's evident that people read those accounts out loud. And so you'll see like the, the name Pontius Pilate was frequently misspelled because people heard it read to them in a room and it was their job to be the copyist. And then if somebody got a hold of a gospel account and tried to end, add an ending to the gospel of Mark, they would do it like with a different religion's take on it, where the Gnostic religion 
sort of believed that Jesus, they co-opted Jesus, and then they sort of said, what if Jesus was a shape-shifting, time-traveling baby? And so you can read the Gospel of Judas, where Jesus is that. It's, a, it's 600 years after the time of Jesus was written down by people in this Gnostic religion. And so we have this end of Mark that is added later, but all the main scholarship is showing that it ends intentionally with all the abruptness that Mark has in his tone of writing the Gospel. That the Gospel just ends. It's a cliffhanger. And it ends with nobody listening to Jesus, which I love in the Bible, which is like, where does the Bible say that anyone will do what God says? Like, no, nowhere. In verse 8, trembling and bewildered, even if it says, don't be alarmed. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Mark ends um, with the cliffhanger because you're meant to not have resolution at the end of this gospel. It's, it's not intended for it to be tied up in a bow where everything is happily ever after. You're ha you have to ask the question, what now? What do I do with this material? And so if you're a skeptic, and you are, are wondering, like, if I investigate this, could this be the thing that Mark is telling us? Could this be the resolution to all my hopes and dreams? We'll go investigate. Richard Bauckham does point out that Mark's tone uh, is using all of the trappings of other literature in the day that is like legal evidence. That when a person is cited as a key player in the plot, that they're, the place that they live or their name is listed. And so for skeptics, for people reading this and going, okay, what do I do with this information? You're meant to go ask the question of the people in that town, where is the centurion that said, surely this person is the Christ? Where is Mary Magdalene who said that she was from this area? Can you point me to her? And they would go investigate. So today even, if you're, if you're a skeptic, maybe that's the process for you. To not have resolution leaving today because you might be saying, all right, I need to go do some work if I want to not make God in my image. And then a Christian, um, are you scared to tell? Like, do the high stakes of this Jesus gospel make you scared? You're not alone. Will you recognize him as king? Will you meditate on this question? What would my life look like if I believed the gospel about Jesus? That's the book of Mark. We are able to look back at this narrative and say, if it's true, my life would be radically changed do I claim it's truth but it's not sinking into my heart then that's the homework what is it about my heart that's not letting it sink down what is it in my mind and heart that my imagination is not ignited at the vast goodness of this news for my life today that's our homework it's meant to be the resolution is meant to be found in your story because of the story that Mark's told us